You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with writer-producer Ken Chang. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. I was talking to another writer recently, and we were talking about the process of creativity. And I think there's this belief that creativity requires our ability to think outward, right? And extrapolate beyond our own experiences and think of the world in imaginative new ways, which is true in a lot of cases, but I also believe in creativity as the ability to access inward and sort of look introspectively at our own personal experiences and mine those experiences in ways that aren't necessarily one-to-one copies of our lives, but that we can extrapolate themes and lessons and comedy, drama, humor into new work. So certainly that was the case for me with Easter Sunday, that this movie was produced. And as you pointed out before we began talking, it is a bit of an anomaly. It's quite unprecedented that, first of all, that a major Hollywood film studio has produced a comedy in the year 2022, which they don't get made very often anymore at this size or scale. And secondly, that movie centers a minority family of any sort, but specifically of a Filipino-American family with a Filipino-American leading man. All of these things add to the sort of historical nature of the movie, for lack of a better description, and, and that's not lost upon me, but also adds to the fact that it's such a crazy experience now having put the movie out into the world to see reactions. And now that it's out of our hands, uh, it's up to the world to receive it or not. <laughs> you know, so that's the process we're undertaking at the moment. There's this metaphor that you have in the story that halo halo, and it seems <laughs> like that's a great metaphor for the whole script because there's just so much in it, so many flavors and colors. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that it was greenlit by Steven Spielberg after reading the first draft of the script. It was quite surreal for myself, obviously, having been the person to write that first draft of the script, but also without going into the boring details of how Hollywood often works, that just simply doesn't happen in any, typically in any sense for a feature film coming from a major studio because the process of what's called development in Hollywood is often very laborious, requires many, many people creative and otherwise, and usually takes quite a long time. But it is a testament, I believe, to the enthusiasm that a lot of people behind the scenes had for Joe Coy as a potential leading man and movie star. And I'd like to take some small amount of pride in, in the fact that it, I think it speaks to the quality of the screenplay that I turned in. It's amazing that you packed that all in because you have moments of stand up in kind of an odd place in a church um, around Easter Sunday. You have a lot of star turns from fellow Crab Club co-founder, you know, Jimmy O. Yang, Tiffany Hedish. Right. Talk about the great cast. Sure. You've really developed characters for all of them. Yeah. The process of conceiving the movie was a quite collaborative. The origin story of this movie goes back about three and a half years when Joe Coy happened to be having lunch at a sushi restaurant and was approached by the now producer of our film, Dan Lin, who is quite a influential producer in Hollywood. And the two of them got to talking about a collaboration. And coincidentally, Joe happened to have been called into a meeting 
at Amblin, which as you probably know, is the studio and production company that Steven Spielberg founded in, I believe the late seventies, early eighties. So these two things, again, as I mentioned earlier, just a very, <laughs> very fortunate confluence of events. I was interested in developing a, a movie around Joe as well. Steven Spielberg had seen Joe's stand-up special uh, on Netflix, I believe while on break from shooting West Side Story at the time, and just fell in love with Joe as a stand-up, as many millions of others have around the world, and became really interested in developing an idea for him to star in. Simultaneously, Dan Lin asked myself, my partner and co-founder of Crab Club, as well as our third partner, Jessica Gao, who is also a very successful TV writer and showrunner, if he could host the next dinner in this dinner series, a dinner party we had been throwing called Crab Club, which for lack of a better description was just an opportunity for particularly Asian American creatives, because there are so few of us working in Hollywood to gather over literally a dinner of Dungeness crab that we prepare, that we cook. One of the things we all haven't gotten is that beyond working in Hollywood as writers, directors, producers, is that we all like to cook quite a bit. And so we began this dinner party, I would say six years ago, in which whenever the price of Dungeness crab hit a low enough threshold at the Asian supermarket, a text message would go out to a thread, almost like a bat signal indicating that it was time to get gather for dinner. And so we started this dinner series really as just an, as a means for creatives in the community, Asian American Hollywood community to gather, commiserate frequently, talk very privately and within a cone of silence about all of the toxic individuals we've come across in this business. And that sort of grew organically into what essentially became an incubator of creative ideas, you know, inevitably when you gather a group of people who work in the creative arts, that setting becomes a bit of a salon, right? And ideas would bounce back and forth between us. And so it was growing naturally into a really, we thought fun and productive event. And so Dan offered to host one for us. And now in retrospect, we realized there's a bit of brilliant producing on his end because at that dinner that he hosted, he invited Joe whom, as I mentioned, he had already begun talking to about a movie idea. And what they needed at the time was essentially a creative team, a writer specifically to mold this loose premise of a story that he had been thinking up in his head. And so Joe came to dinner, came to Crab Club dinner, sat opposite myself and Jessica and Jimmy and Dan, and we just hit it off. And one of the first things that Joe and I specifically bonded over was a shared upbringing in the Filipino community and Filipino culture. What I hope is that people who watch this movie see their own families reflected in the Valencia family's sort of struggles and conflicts and hijinks and laughter and, and whatnot. I actually believe that is the magic of Joe Coy's stand-up as a whole. And part of the reason why he's developed such a, just an enormous following around the world is that Certainly, as it was the case for me, when I first saw his stand-up specials, I saw my own family reflected in his stories. Now, obviously, he and I, as I mentioned, have quite a lot in common culturally, but certainly the, he's not selling out arenas once, twice, three times over all over the world solely on the premise that Filipino-Americans or Filipino diasporic individuals from all over the world are the only ones making up his audience. I, 
that's simply not true. And so I think there is a universality to his storytelling and to his comedy that I know I was trying to replicate or to reflect in the writing and in the storytelling. But more importantly, I do believe very much in this maxim that there is universality in specificity. And so, you know, the movie centering on a Filipino American family, specifically in this enclave of Daly City, California, is highly specific. The use of this very Filipino dessert, halo halo, as a metaphor is a very specific and deliberate choice that I just don't believe makes the movie inaccessible. I actually think it's quite the opposite. You know, there is a version of halo halo across every culture, our own unique experiences. The more people who don't necessarily share those experiences, the more they can take away from it and apply to their own lives. So I think that's the case. And so we have partnered with John M. Chu, the director of Crazy Rich Agents and In the Heights and Warner Brothers to adapt that article into a full-length feature film that we envision as sort of a fun action adventure, a heist adventure with comedic elements, of course, since the three of us at Crab Club all come from comedy backgrounds. We think that's going to be a very fun movie ensemble movie that, frankly, people of color and Asian Americans or Asian diaspora specifically, individuals from the Asian diaspora, haven't been able to participate in, at least in, on the Hollywood level. And so we think it's going to be a fun opportunity for us to tell a different kind of representative story, not, not necessarily one that goes into sort of notions of struggle or anything like that but something a little bit lighter, a little bit more fun that has some action and adventure elements to it as well. The case has been documented in lots of other publications. There's a documentary called Sour Grapes about this case specifically, and it centers on what is essentially the most unlikely figure that you could imagine in this specific world of wine collection and specifically rare wine collection, which is a world only the elite of the wealthiest 1% can participate in because of the prices involved. And at the time, the most influential wine collector in the world was a 26-year-old Chinese immigrant from Indonesia living in Arcadia, California, named Rudy Kurniwan. And so what unfolds from that case is the most bizarre and interesting and frankly, I find quite fun case of con artistry and counterfeiting and other sort of less savory elements. But at the center is this very unique and talented individual who, again, was an anomaly in his world, right? And so I think part of what I'm attracted to in, in stories are those elements of uniqueness that I just can't, I couldn't wrap my head around in the real world, even though these cases do happen in the real world. And often when they center a person of color as the lead in the story, that makes it all the more appealing to me. And it's the reason why I was so excited to get involved in both of these. But it is a challenge to answer your, your question, Youngling. Mentioned to me, uh, I'm not a clever, I don't find myself, I don't consider myself to be a very clever person who can devise, you know, intricate plots and schemes to rob museums. <laughs> and so that is quite a challenge having to write around that. Fortunately, on that specific project, I'm working with my Crab Club partners, Jessica Gao and Jimmy O. Yang, to write that movie as a trio. And uh, it's been, I can say, 
confidently, it's been one of the most fun experiences I've had creatively, just because I get to work so closely with two of my closest friends in the business, both of whom are geniuses in their own right. This was before the era of celebrity chefs or all the many ways the profession has been glamorized in the media. And so I wanted to tell a story set in a restaurant that was the opposite of what we typically see in the media today with whether it's high-end chefs competing on reality shows or stories of sort of high-minded Michelin-starred chefs who are often white <laughs> in other forms of scripted entertainment, running restaurants. As most people, I think most people know, the restaurant industry in America is by and large a very blue-collar industry dominated mostly by not just people of color, but immigrants. I think the figure is something like 85% of the workforce in the American restaurant industry are either people of color or recent immigrants. So that's not, those aren't people that we get to see very often in the more glamorous depictions of the restaurant world. And so that, that's where I wanted to focus our show, how second generation Chinese Americans grapple with that identity while living in modern day Los Angeles and what it means to be Asian American through that lens as well. Food, as you mentioned, is very important to me. I tell this story to younger writers almost as a cautionary tale. But when I began in this business, the first script I ever wrote was essentially a semi-autobiographical comedy about my early 20s living with friends in an apartment building in San Francisco. And the main character, Danny, was me for all intents and purposes. I gave him all my best and worst traits, my insecurity, my tendency to make self-deprecating jokes, my love of specific sports teams. So this main character was essentially me, um, but there was one sort of embarrassing and glaringly obvious way that this character wasn't me. And that was that Danny's last name was Jones. And I turned a character based on me into what I described in the script as a 20-something, only good-looking to his mom, Mark Ruffalo type. Now, you can see me on the Zoom yet. I'm not any of those things. I'm none of those things. And so when I first got to LA and was attempting to make a career in Hollywood as a screenwriter, I preemptively whitewashed myself, for lack of a better description. And, you know, who's to say whether that was the right or wrong decision? It, that script that I referenced, it got me my start in this business. It won me a writing competition. It got me general meetings with Hollywood executives and agents and whatnot. And it eventually got me my first job as a television writer. Would that have been the case if I had made, you know, the lead character's name Danny Chang? I don't know. Maybe. But again, those are the decisions we make at the time because we think that's what's going to best aid us in our goals. And fortunately, I don't think that's the case anymore. I think those are all very worthwhile pursuits. And again, going back to what I was saying earlier about accessing that which is within you and being introspective, remembering the stories of our parents and our grandparents and our aunts and uncles and the struggles that they have, the struggles and the joy, by the way. I don't always want to frame the stories of our forebears in the context of struggle. Although, uh, you know, a lot of the, especially Asian Americans have had to deal with that. There's a lot of joy to be found in those stories as well. And I hope that those are stories that are passed on and remembered because 
you know, as is the case in our movie, it's about the moments that we are able to share with our family in which we experience happiness and laughter and joy that are most important, at least to me. And so I hope that's something that we can reflect in our storytelling moving forward as well. You know, I think we've seen a lot of stories framed around the, the noble struggle, which is what we call it. And I hope we can start diversifying our storytelling a little bit so that we can share a little bit more of the happy pleasures and joys that we experience as families and immigrants as well. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.